0: In the news on Thursday, there was a story about a man in his early 30s who had been unexpectedly called for his COVID vaccine. He had no underlying health condition, so he was a little bit bemused by this, so decided to give his GP a ring. And it turns out what had happened was there was an error on the NHS system. This man was six foot two inches tall. But somebody, when they had put his data into the computer, had put him at 6.2 centimetres tall. Now, this gave him a rather alarming BMI of 28,000. Now, if you bear in mind that a normal BMI, um, a safe BMI, should be around 25, it gives you some indication of the -the off-the-scale thing that had happened. But it's a reminder that sometimes in life things do go wrong, don't they? Sometimes we put the wrong figures into a computer. Sometimes we make mistakes. And sometimes when we do things, we try and make excuses for why things have gone wrong. Or sometimes in, in life, we make excuses for why we're not doing things. And life can sometimes have one too many excuses in it. I wonder what you're like at making excuses in life. Perhaps you look out the window and you think, oh, I know I should go for a walk, but I'm not going for a walk because it rained an hour ago. Or perhaps you sat there in the evening and you're thinking, I really, really should be doing the tour. I've signed up for it, I've got the notes, and I really should be reading my Bible, but actually, oh, I'm just too tired. I'll just put Netflix on, I'll just press next episode. It's so much easier. And we find ourselves making excuses. Or perhaps you're in the supermarket and somebody is there trying to sell you breakdown cover. And you say to yourself, or even out loud, I've not got the time to talk to that person. The reality is, you probably don't need breakdown cover, but that's too long of an explanation. So you actually use the excuse. I find myself doing it. I'm sure we all find ourselves doing it. But here's a challenge. Next time you find yourself making an excuse, be brutally honest with yourself instead. You'll find it's really freeing. Now, during the ministry of Jesus, the people who came into contact with Jesus would often make Excuses. Excuses for not following him. Excuses for not taking him seriously. If you've got the time, have a look at Luke chapter 8. It's probably the most famous chapter for people making excuses for not following Jesus. Now, in the verses that we've heard read to us this morning, certainly on first reading, we probably aren't thinking, well, this is a passage full of excuses. But actually, it is really. It's a passage that has groups of people bringing really quite complex and subtle reasons to not take Jesus seriously. And we find three sets of people in this passage. The first set are some of Jesus's relations or associates, the word can mean either thing. And then we get the teachers of the law. And then a little bit later on, we get the sort of closer members of Jesus's family, Jesus's mother, Mary, and his brothers. Now, these first two groups of people They don't come and try to make any attempt to to say that Jesus' ministry is fake or that his healings and his deliverance didn't really happen. But rather what they do is they make excuses for not taking him seriously. Let's have a look, first of all, at Jesus' family or associates. In the early years of Jesus' ministry, it must have been quite a shock to his family and his close friends to see what was happening The Gospel writers, apart from Luke, who gives us one brief incidence of Jesus as a child going to the temple. But apart from that, they are totally silent on the life of Jesus from those early birth narratives to the start of his uh, ministry, proclaiming the coming of the kingdom some 30 years later. And it's a span of almost three decades where we know nothing of the life of Christ. But Jesus was living, he was growing up from being a child to being a teenager to being a young adult to being a man. And now in his early 30s, at the time when Jesus was living, he'd have been quite a mature uh, man by this sort of time. And he'd have gone through all kinds of life experiences. Work, getting to know his family, making friends, times of fun, probably times of grief and sadness as well. And in verse 20, Jesus again enters a house and a crowd is gathering. It's busy, so busy that he can't even share a meal with his disciples. In verse 21, those close to him come in, and they try and take charge of the situation. They say he's out of his mind. Another translation for that could say he's become wildly eccentric. Because everywhere that Jesus goes, a crowd seems to be following him. The healings, the teaching, the miracles, it's all drawing attention. And it seems that Jesus has become an embarrassment to his family. Somebody to now be taken away, to be taken charge of, and to be told to calm down and keep quiet. Jesus was bringing his family under the spotlight, but it doesn't seem to have been in a particularly positive way. Perhaps his family are now concerned about their own reputations. Perhaps they're concerned about the family business. We can only speculate. But today, if we're a follower of Jesus, actually people will start to view us differently. If we take Jesus' teaching seriously and start doing the things that Jesus does, people will notice. If we start caring for the poor, the oppressed, if we grow a passion for social justice, if we love our neighbour as ourselves if we start to think beyond ourselves to the needs of others, if we start being people who forgive and not hate, if we don't harbour bitterness and resentment, if we choose not to gossip, if we choose not to be peddlers of rumour, people will notice. People will see that we're becoming different. If we choose to give an account for the hope we have in Jesus, again, people will notice there is something different about us. Jesus' family noticed it with him, and people will notice it with us too. Now, some of that might be positive. If we're honest and reliable in our places of work, if if we're in a workplace setting, people will notice that. If as a friend, if people share something with us in confidence and we keep that confidence, people will be drawn to us. If we're generous in our time and in the things that we have, people will warm to us as individuals But if we're not drawn into gossip, if we won't take part in name-calling, if we start to have priorities of eternity, not just of this life, if we prioritise prayer in our lives and Christian service and worship, then people, just like they did with Jesus, may start to think that we have become a little bit wildly eccentric. In many parts of the world today, and in the early years of the Christian church, many Christians actually paid The ultimate price for following Jesus. Following Jesus meant they got noticed and it cost them everything. But we're reminded this Sunday and we're reminded as we take communion together this morning that actually Jesus paid the ultimate price for us. Jesus' ministry got him noticed and it meant that he laid down his life for us for the sins of the world. Now we can make our own excuses for not following Jesus. We can be like Jesus' family, that we we start to find following Jesus too costly, too embarrassing. It's a bit weird, it's a bit out of kilter with what the rest of society does. But you know what this passage reminds us? It always has been. And that for Jesus, he faced those very same things. So can I encourage us today? Let's be those people who put down our own excuses and take Jesus seriously. The second group of people in this passage are the teachers of the law. A crowd, now if you can remember what a crowd is, is um, something that attracts a crowd. It's a well-known saying, isn't it? And so we find in verse 22, the teachers of the law, these experts in the Jewish faith, they come down from Jerusalem to see what Jesus is all about. As I've already said, they don't come down with an attempt to disprove the miracles or the deliverance ministry of Christ, but they start to question the power behind it. And they come up with an elaborate but totally flawed explanation. And it's basically this. The power behind Jesus's ministry is evil. Jesus is dealing with evil in people's lives by being in league with a greater evil. And they say he has an unclean spirit. They talk about him being in league with Beelzebub. Now that word Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. It's a Canaanite name here used to describe the Prince of Demons. But what Jesus does, as he so often does in his teaching, is he dismantles their arguments using parables, using stories to illustrate. And he says a divided kingdom cannot stand. If evil pits itself against evil, the whole lot comes crumbling down. You can't fight against yourself and remain strong. You can't enter a strong man's house without first dealing with the strong man. What the teachers of the law are doing is deflecting taking Jesus seriously by falsely attributing his ministry to evil powers. They're making elaborate excuses for not taking Jesus seriously. And then we come to verses 28 and 29. And we get a puzzling remark from Jesus, and and it's a remark that I think has caused a lot of anguish for many Christians over the years. Look at verse 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Now that word blasphemy really means to show complete and utter contempt for the things of God. The third of the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus that would have been well known to these Jewish leaders would tell us not to take the Lord's name in vain, not to blaspheme the name of the Lord They would also have known that God's Holy Spirit was God at work in the world. So what does this rather strange verse mean for us, and should it concern us today? Well, before we look at what it means, can I just say one thing that it definitely doesn't mean, and it's very clear that we put the distinction in here. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul writes this, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. What Paul is saying there is it's actually, sadly, all too easy to grieve the Spirit of God. And as Christians, when we slip into becoming angry people, people that are full of wrath, people that start to slander one another... Actually, what we do is we make the Holy Spirit, we make God himself grieved by our behavior. Blasphemy against the Spirit is something quite different. It's something very extreme and something very deliberate. John Chrysostom, who was a, a great preacher of the early church in the fourth century, he says this. He says, those who blaspheme the Spirit are calling pure divine goodness evil. A person who does this has willfully and deliberately hardened themselves to the things of God and out of their own decision moves to the point where they are unable to ask for or accept God's forgiveness. They've got to the stage where they are calling goodness itself evil and by nature evil good. And they have become unforgivable because they no longer recognise God's offer of forgiveness as a good thing. Now, the teachers of the law, they are getting close to that kind of way of thinking. They are going down that dangerous road that ends up a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But notice Jesus doesn't actually say they've got there. Rather, he offers this as a warning that when you start saying the things of God are evil, you end up in a place of absolute ruin and alienation from God. Now, for us, if you're a follower of Jesus today, we do need to be on guard against grieving the Spirit of God. We do need to understand that Christian discipleship is something that needs to be taken absolutely seriously, joyfully seriously, but seriously. We need to make sure that that we, we don't do those things that unnecessarily grieve the heart of God. But the extremity of what Jesus is talking about in verse 29 is not something, I believe, any follower of Jesus accidentally do. But for the teachers of the law, their musings, their thinkings, their elaborate and dangerous but flawed excuses to not take Jesus seriously put them in a place of extreme peril. So can I encourage us, let's take the warning seriously here. Following Jesus is a serious business. To lay our own self down and to become those followers, those disciples of Jesus who proclaim him as Lord and who live our lives out for him. The third group of people in this passage are Jesus's mothers and brothers. Jesus' closest family members, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and some of his close family, and they've come looking for him. Now, it's quite possible, although Mark doesn't say it, that those who came to try and take control of Jesus in verse 21 realised they've not got anywhere, and so they they now bring in the close members of Jesus' family to try and do the same thing. Now, Jesus' response to his family in verse 33 can seem quite rude and dismissive, because he seems to just say, well, who are my brothers? Who is my mother? And it's almost like he's dismissive of them. Far from it. Actually, as we read the Gospel accounts, as the Gospel unfolds, what we see is that Jesus cares deeply for his actual mother and for his brothers. And at the events of the crucifixion, Jesus looks at his mother and asks one of his disciples to take care of her. So actually, what Jesus is doing here is pointing us to something quite different. In the kingdom of God, we are all one big family when we do the will of God. We are all those who are God's forgiven people. We have an abundance of brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, a couple of years ago, there was a team of us went out from LBC to visit two of our mission partners, Adrian and Violet, in Romania. And while we were there, we went round visiting um, a number of Hungarian-speaking Romanian churches, often in quite isolated rural areas. Now, when we went to those churches, we didn't share a common language. We couldn't talk um, face-to-face in a way that we could sort of communicate in that kind of meaningful way. But what we did find is that our heart languages were the same. We were all people of the gospel. We were all God's forgiven people. We were all praising the same Lord together. And so you sense that family unity, even though you're in quite different locations. What a blessing, isn't it, today? And how important it is to pray for our brothers and sisters across the world, here we're united with in Christ. But let's, as we've got to the end of this passage, let's just go back to that theme of excuses for a moment. Can I just ask you to reflect on these three things today? In your discipleship with Jesus, are you living a life of excuses? Are you putting excuses in place? to not take Jesus seriously? Secondly, what would your life look like if those excuses were dismantled? If you put those on one side, if you started to be really honest with the Lord as to your journey of discipleship with him, what would that look like? And thirdly, what would your life begin to look like if you committed to doing God's will in each area of your life? Just going to leave for just a few seconds with that slide on the screen, um, just to reflect on those questions, and then I will pray for us. So just a moment of silence. Lord, we thank you that you have called us to follow you. Lord, please forgive us for those times where we put up excuses for not taking you seriously. Help us, as this passage says, to be those who do God's will. And help us today to remember and rejoice that we are are part of the worldwide family of God through the work of Jesus Christ. So help us this week, we pray, to follow you. Help us to be those who do your will. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.